Anyway, we are back. A couple of weeks ago, this correspondent visited some marijuana dispensaries. We're keen to go back and talk about what we found with the people there in these dispensaries and kind of describe for you what they are like. This was a highly interesting experience. Cannabis appears to be finding its way into more or less mainstream medical treatment, and it certainly does have appear to have some great applications, and it's just something that's long overdue. So I was therefore somewhat disturbed to see the cover story on the Sacramento Bee this weekend, article by Peter Hecht, about how pot farms and raids are on the rise. In fact, the article is illustrated by a dramatic photograph of what looks like a camouflage-wearing SWAT team member being airlifted in on a chopper to come down and uproot marijuana plants. Your typical helicopter costs, I don't know, something like three to $500 an hour. And I think one just has to ask how smart a use of police resources this is. According to the article, so far this year, the Campaign Against Marijuana Planting, a California task force of nine state and federal agencies, has seized about four million plants, which is a one million increase over last year's record haul. These pot farms generally appear to involve Mexican citizens brought to, uh, to grow the plants on this side of the border rather than risk having to, uh, you know, cross La Frontera. And I suppose, you know, there's some dangers of people having a, you know, a valuable pot farm out in the woods and people that are armed out there, but, you know, I don't know. This seems kind of dumb to me. Of course, it might be good to mention that any opinion you hear on this program does not, of course, necessarily represent the opinions of KDVS, its sponsors, or the regents of the University of California. For the record, this correspondent can verify that the regents were allowing the planting of vast hemp fields near Davis back in the early 1970s. can also verify, based on extensive experience by the Webster-Emerson dorm, that materials gathered from said fields will not, no matter what you do, get you intoxicated. And on a different uh, topic, we'd like to note that there was a fascinating article from the New York, in the New York Times about how in the Merced Medical Center, down in Merced, shamans are being given the same, uh, the same status in hospitals as are pastors and priests, etc. Apparently these certified shamans with embroidered jackets and official badges have really the same unrestricted access to patients as do clergy members. Article noted that a recent seven-week training program at uh, Merced Medical Center trained 89 shamans uh, as to regarding some elements of Western-style medicine, including the germ theory of disease. According to the article, they visited operating rooms and peered through microscopes for the first time. Looking at heart cells, one shaman, an elderly woman, asked the pathologist to show her a happy heart. The article is crediting some success to this program given the Hmong belief system in which surgery, anesthesia, blood transfusions, and other common procedures are taboo. Hmong, of course, believe that their souls, like errant children, are capable of wandering off or being captured by malevolent spirits which cause illness. The article described actions by Vang Meng Li, who performed a ceremony on a diabetic man described as a spiritual inoculation meant to protect his soul from being kidnapped by his late wife and thus extending his, quote, life visa, unquote. Yes, some people think this is a real step forward in medical care. Having trained as a family practice resident, 
in this same facility, which has now been renamed from Merced Community Medical Center as it was 20 years ago when I was there, well, let's just say I have some reservations. And speaking of reservations, we want to give our award this week. What's going to be the positive award? Which would be the attaboy to Sacramento Bee columnist Marcos Breton, who wrote about the recent headline news about uh, various do-gooders who were bringing homeless people into uh, encampments in the downtown area. To quote from Marcos Breton, The smell of urine may be coming to a corner near you. Sacramento seems to be on its way to becoming a city where homeless charity is an entrenched institution. The pieces are in place. Homeless advocates have legal backing. They are ruthless and motivated. They are poised to take advantage of a leadership vacuum at City Hall. And high-profile members of Sacramento's faith community are disengaged or supportive of a legalized tent city downtown. This week, a judge heard arguments on a temporary restraining order to stop the homeless from illegally camping at 13th and C Streets. They've been out there a month, aided by Loaves and Fishes, the largest homeless charity in Sacramento. Another key player is Mark Marin, a Sacramento lawyer who is letting homeless people camp on his property despite neighbor complaints and a city ordinance that forbids it. Their ultimate goal is to strike down Sacramento's anti-camping ordinance, and if this happens, it will be open season. Just check out Portland, Oregon. Like Sacramento, Portland's homeless lobby is led by a group run by Catholic nuns wrapped in flags of faith and political correctness. If you disagree with them, their allies demonize you, a strategy, that, a strategy that's been effective at neutralizing politicians in both cities. Portland has a legal tent city called Dignity Village. It's been open nearly a decade. Has it solved the problem of homelessness in Portland? No way. If anything, it's gotten worse. A July story in the Portland Oregonian stated, In Multnomah County, a count in January found 1,591 people sleeping outside, 820 in emergency shelters, and 27 staying in motels with vouchers. That was 13% higher than in 2007. In Sacramento, homeless advocates claim a brutal economy is driving people into the streets. Yet the homeless people, regularly quoted in the media, have been camping along the American River for years. Noted Marcos Breton, this summer, Portland streets were inundated, despite Dignity Village, more shelters, showers, and public toilets. We saw a rise in individuals who don't want any type of help, said Megan Dorn, spokesman for the Portland Business Alliance. The city used a sidewalk obstruction ordinance to deal with homeless people blocking city storefronts until a Multnomah County judge struck it down this summer. After that, we saw a real empowerment of some homeless people. The amount of people putting blankets down and sitting on the sidewalks went up. It's a cautionary tale, concludes Mr. Breton. If you make homeless charity an institution, you don't become safe ground. As local advocates preach, you become a magnet. We intend to bring Marcos Breton on this program to talk about this and other things. This is such a voice of sanity. And he did write that just before the ruling came down that they did have to disband these homeless encampments, at least the one that was uh, downtown. Loaves and Fishes remains open for business. A giant beacon in the night bringing homeless from, you know, dozens to scores to maybe hundreds of miles away into Sacramento. Meanwhile, they just can't figure out why it is people don't want to come shopping downtown. We'd like to know that Marcos Breton's a little bit late. There already is the smell of urine in doorways. I was down this in the, uh, the K Street Mall area a couple weeks ago where I saw the final performance of Forever Plaid. 
which broke records as the longest-running musical in Sacramento history. Good show, worth seeing, and a nice venue down there near the Crest Theater. Downtown Sacramento is an area that's been waiting to, uh, to have a resurgence for many years now, and the first thing they can do to make that happen is to get these homeless encampments located in a more rural area. A lot of these homeless advocates and homeless people put half the energy into uh, trying to establish a camp, into going out and getting a job. They might not be homeless for very much longer. All right, here's a story we really liked. We don't have the follow-up on it yet, but apparently uh, seven swimmers took off from Sacramento to swim from here to San Francisco. Swimming in shifts, this team planned to cover the 100-mile distance, and in the process... uh, raise the issue of water quality in the Sacramento Delta. We've been talking about the Delta on this program. The, the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta is the largest estuary on the west coast of the Western Hemisphere. Article noted there was some concerns about, uh, about health risks to the swimmers trying to traverse the Delta, noting that there's pollution, uh, to be sure, from uh, many sources, including industrial, agricultural, and uh, urban Pollutants. Note the article by Ed Fletcher in the Sacramento Bee. Pollution and the future of the Delta have long been debated by politicians, environmentalists, and business interests in a tussle over California's diminished fresh water supply. We're going to track down these folks and talk to them about this epic swim and find out for ourselves how it is they fared in the Delta's waters. It was noted that five of these swimmers had had experience uh, with the English Channel. Speaking of the English Channel, apparently a pastor from Illinois just swam it. Apparently the Reverend Mike Solberg of the Second Congregational Church in Rockford, Illinois, swam the 21 miles uh, in 14 hours. He was trying to raise money for a school in Africa. Apparently he wrote in a blog that the first five hours were good, followed by four hours that were not so good. And no, I'm not sure what that says about the final five hours, but I bet they were really not so good. And speaking of... uh, Water quality issues that we wore just a second ago. Article by Charles Duig in the New York Times. Late last month noted there's been some concerns about the popular weed killer atrazine, uh, which is used to protect crops, golf courses, and manicured lawns, uh, which unfortunately often washes into water supplies, becoming the most common contaminant in American reservoirs and other sources of drinking water. Article notes that new research suggests that atrazine may be dangerous in lower concentrations than previously thought. Recent studies suggest that even at concentrations meeting current federal standards, it may be associated with birth defects, low birth weights, and menstrual problems. Officials at the EPA say Americans are not exposed to unsafe levels of atrazine and say that current regulations are adequate to protect human health. The doses of atrazine coming through people's taps are safe even when concentrations jump. So I do know that EPA officials also know that anyone using atrazine must complete a short training course and they're warned to wear long sleeve shirts and pants, as well as chemical-resistant gloves and shoes when spraying. Other than that, I guess the stuff is. Other than that, I guess the stuff is perfectly safe. We'll look for updates on that story. And speaking of deadly water, don't you love these segues? Recent study reported in the Economist magazine of rogue waves indicates they may not be as rare as once thought. Sailors have always described the sudden appearance of waves from 30 to 100 feet in height, and, and uh, these, were, these were largely discounted, but uh, uh, the evidence is now proven, based on uh, data from oil rigs and such, that such things do happen on a fairly regular basis. 
1995, an oil rig in the North Sea recorded a, well, about an 80-foot-high wave. In the year 2000, the British oceanographic vessel recorded a, about a 95-foot wave, 29-meter wave, off the coast of Scotland. And in 2004, scientists using three weeks of radar images from the European Space Agency satellites found 10 rogue waves, 25 meters or more in height. And for Wanda Sykes and the metrically challenged, that, that's about 80 feet. Anyway, using satellite data, they're trying to monitor these, uh, these waves that appear in certain areas where currents and, 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 uh, and, and winds converge. But uh, the alarming stats show these things are about 10 to 100 times as common as previously suspected. Let's talk about some environmental stuff. Marilyn Vos Savant, in her column in Parade Magazine, posed this question. If Jack drives a gas-guzzling SUV 15,000 miles a year, averaging 10 miles a gallon, and his wife Jill drives an economy car the same distance, getting 30 miles to gallon, and the couple wants to use less gasoline, they're considering two different cars, Jack's clunker gets traded for an SUV that gets 13 mpg, or would you trade Jill's sensible car for a hybrid that gets 60 miles per gallon? My, my immediate thought correctly was that you want to dump the gas guzzler. And indeed, going from 10 miles to gallon to 13 would save 346 gallons, whereas trading the, uh, the economy car in for an even better economy would only save 250. These kind of calculations are something you really ought to do before you buy a new car. Gas has been so cheap in past years that it didn't figure that much into people's uh, long-term uh, expenses for their automobile, but, you know, it should. To say nothing, of course, of the carbon footprint, uh, or reduction, rather, in the carbon footprint uh, you'll see by being more eco-friendly. And speaking of eco-friendly, as we are, it was noted in the uh, business section of the Sacramento Bee, article by Jim Downing, that uh, there's been a big corporate push now for recycling. Plastic bags are a huge uh, ecological problem. It was noted the staff at Save Mart stores and some other grocery chains as well are going to start wearing Got Your Bags buttons. Uh, this is an effort to get people to bring their own bags in to a grocery shop. In the meantime, city governments from Malibu to Oakland have enacted plastic bag bans, justified mainly as litter control measures. Boy, considering how bad plastic bags are when it comes to paper or plastic, I just think, you know, we, we might want to choose paper. But of course, the best solution is to take your own bag in. The Europeans do this, and America's, you know, trying to learn how to as well. And, and a, uh, an opinion piece in New Scientist magazine dating back to last June noted that one thing we may want to tackle first when it comes to global warming is methane. Apparently a ton of methane is a, responsible for nearly 100 times more global warming over the first five years of its lifetime than a ton of emitted CO2. Article further noted that CO2 is... One of the least damaging gases in terms of human health, methane, conversely, is a precursor of ground-level ozone, which is a toxic air pollution. It also contributes to carbon monoxide, volatile organic compounds, and carbon particles. All right, I'm convinced. Now, how do we do it? And a rather sad footnote to that article is the August 1st edition of The Economist magazine, noting that the tundra is among the least studied types of terrain on Earth. But uh, that's going to change because as the world is warming up in response to the millions of tons of CO2 and other greenhouse gases, so too does the permafrost warm up. And as it thaws, the bacteria 
frozen inside start chewing up the organic matter which it contains, which releases yet more carbon dioxide as well as methane and other greenhouse gases, which that article notes has 25 times the warming potential of CO2. Article notes how we need to study this uh, in some details so as to know what we can do about it. Of course, the sad reality is that Studying a problem and understanding it in more t detail does not inevitably result in you coming up with a solution to the problem. As the article itself notes, whether anything short of reversing climate change can be done about all this is a moot question. But at least when the project reports in five years' time, the size of the threat will be clearer. The news it brings may not be welcome. But it is surely better than living in ignorance about one of the world's most important habitats. Speaking of habitats, uh, Cover story, National Geographic magazine looks at what Manhattan Island looked like when Henry Hudson discovered it 400 years ago. Island was described as an Eden of hilly forests, bird-filled wetlands, and stream-crossed meadows, with more plant species than Yosemite has today. The human population was about 600 Native Americans. I always get a bit whimsical reading an article like that because when I go to my hometown in Fremont and see how it's all been built up, I'm able to remember from my childhood, what the terrain used to look like. And I gotta tell you, sometimes it's a little creepy. Do note this, if you ever go to Fremont to pick up the end of the BART station to go to San Francisco, the BART station in Fremont is built into the Hayward Earthquake Fault. And no, I don't mean alongside, I mean they went down into the fault and built the station. And one of these days in the not-too-distant future, we're going to take a microphone down to Fremont and talk to people to see if they're aware of this fact. Seems to me that the real estate agents, which made so much money by paving over my former hometown, um, probably weren't as upfront about that little factoid as they might have been. That's just my suspicion, but we'll find out one of these days. But for now, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax.